Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is Ferdinand Magellan's epic sea voyage to circumnavigate the world. If there's one thing that people know about Ferdinand Magellan, it's that he was the first person to sail completely around the world. To start with, that's not true at least regarding Magellan himself. One of the ships under his command made it all the way around the earth, but Magellan died along the way. The Magellan expedition, called the Armada de Maluca, left Spain on September 20, 1519 with five ships. The expedition sailed around the southern part of South America into the Pacific Ocean. Eventually, one of those five ships sailed from the Pacific through the Indian Ocean down around the southern tip of Africa and back to Spain. When that one surviving ship, the Victoria, arrived back where it started in the port of Sanlúcar de Barrameda on September 6, 1522, it had circumnavigated the globe, meaning it sailed around the entire earth. But there was a tremendous cost of the approximately 240 men who started on the five small ships of the Armada de Maluca, only 18 returned. Not all of the rest died, I'll explain what happened later, but only 18 of those original sailors had sailed around the world. Magellan was not one of the men who made it back to Spain. He had been killed in the Philippines in the previous year. I'll describe his fate later on. Before I proceed, let's go over a few terms I'll be using. The Eastern Hemisphere encompasses Europe, Asia, and Africa. The Western Hemisphere and the Americas are synonymous. Those terms include North America, South America, Central America, and the islands of the Caribbean and the Bahamas. Let's set the scene for this whole story. This was the age of discovery. Europeans began exploring the world. In the 1400s, the Portuguese were exploring Africa. It wasn't just intellectual curiosity which spurred them forward. The Portuguese were trying to find a way to Asia. Why was that? Simple. Trade. Europeans traded a lot with Asia. Until the 1400s, all of the trade with Asia went through the Middle East on the Silk Road, which, by the way, was not an actual road nor a single route. Once goods reached the Middle East, they were then moved on ships in the Mediterranean. But in the 1400s, the Portuguese were exploring the coast of Africa to find a sea route to Asia. The Portuguese were tired of paying all those middlemen in the Middle East. This was good timing because the fall of Constantinople in 1453 essentially closed the Silk Road. The Portuguese believed there was a way to go around the southern part of Africa. Throughout the 1400s, they kept going further and further down the west coast of Africa. Finally, in 1488, Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Diaz became the first European to round the southern tip of Africa into the Indian Ocean. He didn't go all the way to India, he returned to Portugal. How did Diaz know that he was in the Indian Ocean in 1488? When the sun rose, he could tell which direction was east, and he could see that Africa was in the opposite direction, meaning that it was to the west. This meant that he was now on the eastern side of Africa in the Indian Ocean. Ten years after Diaz reached the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese finally reached India in May of 1498. That was when Portuguese captain Vasco da Gama 
became the first European to reach India by sailing down around the southern part of Africa. By the way, most people think that the Cape of Good Hope is Africa's southernmost point. It's not. Cabo das Agulas is the southernmost location of Africa. The Cape of Good Hope is more famous than Cabo das Agulas because the Cape of Good Hope is where ships stopped traveling south and started traveling eastward below Africa. Originally, Bartolomeo Diaz named this point the Cape of Storms. The King of Portugal renamed it to the Cape of Good Hope to give it a more optimistic image. I've been to the Cape and Diaz was right. It should be named the Cape of Storms. On a shelf in my office, I have a Coca-Cola bottle with several tiny seashells I picked up at the Cape of Good Hope. As the Portuguese were exploring Africa and finding a way to Asia around the southern coast of Africa, Christopher Columbus tried to find a way to Asia by sailing west. There's a common myth that Columbus sailed to prove that the earth was round. Not true. For centuries, educated people knew that the world was round. Columbus wanted to find a new route to Asia by sailing west from Europe. Columbus was not the first to have the idea that Europeans could reach Asia by sailing west across the Atlantic. However, most people who considered such a voyage calculated that it was much too far and that it could not be done because people on the ships would run out of food and water. So why did Columbus think that he could make such a voyage? It's because he miscalculated the size of the earth. Columbus thought that the earth was much smaller than it really is. So he believed that ships could reach Asia before they ran out of supplies. Amazingly, and by sheer coincidence, the distance from Spain to the Americas was roughly what Columbus thought the distance would be to reach Asia. In the 1400s, nobody in Europe knew that the Americas existed. It was through sheer luck that Columbus found land approximately where he expected to find it. It's just that Columbus and his crew were in the Americas and not Asia. And we all know the year from the rhyme we learned as little kids. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. If you'd like to know more about Columbus and his voyages, and more importantly, how his discoveries changed the world more than anybody else in the last 1,000 years, I did an episode called How Columbus Changed the World. Modesty prevents me from telling you to listen to that episode, but my wife highly recommends it. Until he died, Columbus insisted that he had found the Indies, which is what he called Asia. That's the reason he called the indigenous people Indians. But another Italian explorer who sailed on behalf of Spain and later for Portugal, named Amerigo Vespucci, was apparently the first one to understand that the lands found by Columbus were a new continent. Of course, it turned out to be two new continents. Nobody in the old world of Europe, Asia, and Africa knew that the Western Hemisphere existed. In 1507, a German mapmaker named Martin Walsemuller made a map of the known world. This was the first map to clearly show a separate Western Hemisphere as well as the Pacific Ocean, although it had not yet been named the Pacific Ocean. Up until the time of Columbus, Europeans thought that the Atlantic Ocean stretched all the way to Eastern Asia with the Indian Ocean on the south side of Asia 
and to the east of Africa. Since it was Amerigo Vespucci who first understood that these western lands were not Asia but a separate continent, Waltz Mueller named the new continent America, a Latinized and female version of his first name, Amerigo. When Europeans understood that the western hemisphere was actually two continents, we got the names of North America and South America. There were other European powers at the time, like Britain and France, but by the 1490s, only Portugal and Spain were seriously exploring the world. This brings us to the Treaty of Tordesillas. That was a treaty signed between Portugal and Spain in June 1494, dividing the New World into two spheres of influence. The eastern half belonged to Portugal, and the western half belonged to Spain. This was more than 23 years before the big event of October 31, 1517, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany. That meant that the Treaty of Tordesillas occurred before the Protestant Reformation, meaning that at this time, the Pope still had great influence over all the kings of Europe. It was the Pope that divided the world in half between Spain and the Portuguese. In a conference held between the Spanish and Portuguese in the town of Tordesillas, Spain, a straight vertical line was drawn on the map from north to south. All lands east of that line belonged to Portugal, and all lands west of that line belonged to Spain. Think about how absurd this was. Nobody consulted the other European powers, and, much more importantly, nobody consulted the millions of people living in the Americas, Africa, or Asia. The original north-south line of demarcation was defined as 100 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands. That's a group of islands off the west coast of North Africa, directly west of modern Senegal. The line of demarcation was moved and eventually was located at 370 leagues to the west of the Cape Verde Islands. The two sides agreed to this so Portugal could claim the east coast of what is now Brazil. The line of demarcation ended up at 46 degrees, 37 minutes west of the prime meridian of Greenwich, England. Essentially right near modern-day Sao Paulo, Brazil. The Treaty of Tordesillas is the reason why just about all of the countries south of the U.S. and the Western Hemisphere speak Spanish, except for Brazil, which speaks Portuguese. And the Treaty of Tordesillas is why Magellan made his fateful voyage. Magellan was born in 1480 in Portugal. By the way, Ferdinand Magellan is an anglicized version of his Portuguese name, Fernando de Magellas. I am sure I am butchering the pronunciation but I'm sorry, I do not speak any Portuguese. As a young man, he became a sailor and traveled to India in the early 1500s. Purportedly, he remained in India for eight years. Magellan later served on a later expedition throughout the Indian Ocean on behalf of the Portuguese. Magellan returned to Portugal with an indentured servant from Malacca. Malacca is located in modern-day Malaysia on the Malay Peninsula just northwest of Singapore. Don't you just love that euphemism, indentured servant? This was a nice way of saying what he really was, a slave. The indentured servant was baptized into Christianity and received the name Enrique. Keep Enrique in mind because he will come into play later on. When he was back in Lisbon, Magellan made proposals to the king of Portugal that he could find a new route to the Spice Islands by heading west. 
But the King of Portugal really had no interest in a western route to the Spice Islands for two reasons. Number one, the Portuguese already had a route to the Spice Islands by sailing around the southern tip of Africa. Number two, sailing west would go into the Spanish sphere of influence under the Treaty of Tordesillas. Magellan supposedly received permission from the King of Portugal to leave Lisbon and make his proposals to other monarchs. So, like Columbus before him, Magellan pitched his idea to the King of Spain. Christopher Columbus was Italian from the city of Genoa, but sailed on behalf of Spain. Magellan may have been Portuguese, but he would sail on behalf of Spain just like his hero Columbus. The king of Spain was interested in Magellan's proposal because it was a way to get to the Spice Islands by going through the Spanish waters under the Treaty of Tordesillas. Before I get into the journey, let's first discuss the Spice Islands and why people wanted to get there. In the 21st century, we take good tasting food for granted. Things were a lot different in the 1400s and 1500s. Most of the food in Europe was bland, tasteless, and monotonous. In my podcast episode entitled, How Columbus Changed the World, I explain about the Columbian Exchange. That term meant the transfer of people, plants, animals, and diseases between the Eastern Hemisphere and the Western Hemisphere. A lot of foods were only known in either the Eastern or Western halves of the world. After Columbus's initial voyage in 1492, the floodgates opened and a lot of things, including foods, went from one hemisphere to the other. All of those new foods entering the European diets were certainly welcome, but they did not diminish the importance of spices. The history of spices goes back thousands of years. We know that the ancient Egyptians used various spices for flavoring food. The use of spices spread throughout the Eastern Hemisphere. Europeans really prized spices, which came from China, India, and what became known as the Spice Islands. Don't look on a map for the Spice Islands. You won't find them. That was a nickname from the Europeans, but the real name is the Moluccas, also known as the Malacu Islands. That is why the group of five ships commanded by Magellan was called the Armada de Malucca. The Moluccas are an archipelago with a about a thousand or so islands, although many of them are pretty small. The total land mass of the Moluccas is approximately 29,000 square miles or about 75,000 square kilometers. Today, the Moluccas are part of Indonesia. In the 1500s, nutmeg, mace, and cloves were only found on the Moluccas. Fun fact, The nutmeg tree is the only plant which provides humans with two spices. Nutmegs are the actual seeds of the tree, and mace is derived from the dried, lacy coating of the nutmeg seed. In addition to being the only place where you could find nutmeg, mace, and cloves, the Moluccas were the largest producers of pepper in the world. The Moluccas were involved in the spice trade long before Europeans arrived in the early 1500s. The local peoples of the Spice Islands had been trading with people from China, India, and the Middle East. In the 1500s, nutmeg and cloves were the most expensive spices in Europe. They were literally worth more than their weight in gold. Spices were so valuable in Europe because of two reasons. 
Number one, they were scarce since they had to come all the way from Asia. Number two, they were seen as a status symbol and a sign of luxury. Wealthy Europeans like to impress their guests with fancy dishes made more flavorful, aromatic, and even colorful with the use of exotic spices. In addition to their use in food preparation, spices were also believed to have medicinal properties. You have to keep in mind the state of medicine in those times. Sailors could become incredibly wealthy by transporting nutmeg and cloves, and cloves were valued even more than nutmeg. After Vasco da Gama discovered a sea route to India by sailing around the southern tip of Africa, the Portuguese explored the Indian Ocean and eventually found the Spice Islands. In 1512, the Portuguese were the first Europeans to set up bases in the Spice Islands. The Spanish, British, and Dutch all vied with the Portuguese for control of the incredibly valuable Moluccas. Spoiler, by the 1660s, the Dutch emerged victorious and controlled all of that giant archipelago, which, until after World War II, was called the Dutch East Indies. It's an area that has a lot of valuable natural resources. In World War II, the Japanese invaded and conquered the Dutch East Indies because of oil. After World War II, the Dutch tried to reassert their authority through a four-year struggle which was eventually won by the indigenous people. And in 1949, the Republic of the United States of Indonesia became an independent country. Today, Indonesia is the most populous Muslim country in the world with a current population of over 270 million people. It's now time to talk about the actual voyage. The fact that Magellan did not set off to circumnavigate the world does not diminish the impact of his trip. Even though all educated people at that time understood that the world was round, most people did not believe that it was possible to sail around the entire world. They thought the distances were too great and that there were too many dangers in the days of wooden ships and sails. The fact that one ship and 18 sailors had actually sailed around the entire earth was a remarkable achievement and proved to the world that it could be done. After being rejected by the King of Portugal, Magellan went to Spain and became a Spanish citizen. The Spanish crown gave Magellan its blessing. Magellan was provided with five ships. Most of the officers and sailors on those ships were Spanish and really resented sailing under a Portuguese commander. There were about 40 or so Portuguese among the officers and crew, as well as some other nationalities. But by the orders of the king, Magellan was in overall command of the expedition with the title of Captain General. Magellan was captain of the flagship, the Trinidad. The other four ships were the San Antonio, the Concepcion, the Santiago, and the Victoria. Magellan was not undertaking this dangerous mission for glory and adventure. If he was successful, he was going to become a very wealthy man. The Spanish king granted Magellan a decade-long monopoly on any route that Magellan might discover through the Americas to Asia. That would make Magellan a fortune if he was successful. The Armada de Maluca departed on September 20, 1519 from the Spanish port of Sanlúcar de Barrameda. There were somewhere between 240 and 270 men on these five ships. I've read different figures. The Armada de Maluca was sailing off into the unknown. Exploration on wooden ships was incredibly dangerous. Ships could be lost due to violent storms or by running into unknown islands or reefs in the middle of the night. 
And in those days, if your ship sunk, you went down with it. Nobody was going to save you. Europeans searched for centuries for a Northwest Passage. You hear that term a lot in history, the Northwest Passage. It meant a water route from the Atlantic to the Pacific through North America. They were searching for a westward passage through the north of the Western Hemisphere. Unfortunately for the Europeans, the only sea route from the Atlantic to the Pacific above North America is in the northern fringes of Canada and it's icebound. Sailing ships could not get through. It was not until the early 1900s that a Norwegian named Roald Amundsen led the first successful pass through the Northwest Passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Amundsen's ship was named the Yawa or Joa. Since I don't speak Norwegian, I have no idea if I'm anywhere close to correctly pronouncing it, but it's spelled G-J-O with a line through the O, A. It was built as a wooden sailing ship, a sloop. When Amundsen purchased the ship, he had it refitted. He put an extra strengthening of the hull, lengthened the ice sheathing down to the keel, and improved the interior fittings. The ship was powered by both sail and an engine. Amazingly, there were only a total of seven people aboard that ship when it traversed the Northwest Passage. Eventually, Amundsen arrived in San Francisco on October 19, 1906. By the way, that was six months and one day after the great San Francisco earthquake of April 18, 1906. I bring all this up to point out that there was no practical Northwest Passage. That's why it was essential to find a Southwest Passage to Asia, and that's what Magellan was convinced he would find. He believed that he could find a strait through South America to take him to the ocean on the other side of the Western Hemisphere. So the purpose of his voyage was to explore further south, down the east coast of South America, until he could find a strait which he believed, or maybe just hoped, existed. After leaving the Spanish port of Sanlúcar de Barrameda, the first stop was the Canary Islands. The little fleet arrived there on September 26, 1519. The Canaries are an archipelago in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of present-day Morocco in the northwest part of Africa. Spanish ships usually stopped in the Canaries to load up on supplies. While in the Canaries, Magellan received a message that the Portuguese knew of his mission on behalf of Spain and that the Portuguese had sent two fleets out to stop the Armada de Maluca and arrest Magellan as a traitor. When Magellan's fleet left the Canary Islands on October 3, 1519, they did not sail directly for South America as expected. Magellan correctly figured that the Portuguese would be searching for him somewhere between the Canary Islands and Brazil. To lose his Portuguese pursuers, Magellan sailed south along the coast of Africa. The other captains were puzzled why he was doing this, and for some reason Magellan did not tell the other four captains about the Portuguese looking for them. When they reached the waters near the equator, Magellan's ships were stuck for a while in what is known as the doldrums. That's a nautical term referring to a belt around the earth extending about 5 degrees north and about 5 degrees south of the equator. In the doldrums, sailing ships often get stuck because of a lack of wind. That term has entered 
the English lexicon, you'll hear people saying that they're in the doldrums, referring to a period of inactivity or stagnation or depression, but that's where it actually comes from. It was a nautical term. Eventually, the doldrums subsided and Magellan's expedition was able to pick up some of the trade winds that carried them across the Atlantic to South America. An attempted mutiny occurred during the crossing of the Atlantic. The leader of the mutiny was the captain of the San Antonio, a Spaniard named Juan de Cartagena. Magellan put down the attempted mutiny. In most situations of mutiny, a ringleader like Cartagena would have been executed. But unfortunately for Magellan, Cartagena came from a well-connected family who was close to the Spanish king. So Magellan simply had Cartagena removed from command of the San Antonio and placed on the Concepcion, not as an officer, but just as a passenger. The Armada de Maluca reached the coast of Brazil on November 29, 1519. They sailed a little further south, and on December 13, they reached the harbor of what is now known as Rio de Janeiro. Magellan's fleet spent almost two weeks at Rio. They repaired the ships and took on food and water for the next stage of their trip. The Armada de Maluca had brought plenty of items to trade with the locals. Especially popular with the natives were mirrors, combs, beads, and bells. The sailors did not want to leave Rio de Janeiro. They felt like they were in paradise. The weather was great. The beaches were fantastic, and they were eating fresh food. And most importantly, they were happy that the local women had an extremely morally casual attitude when it came to sex, especially compared to Europe of the 1500s. At the end of December 1519, the fleet left Rio de Janeiro. They continued sailing south, hoping to find the strait through South America. Remember that this is the southern hemisphere, so December was the beginning of summer. In January 1520, they thought they had found the strait that they were seeking. It was a wide opening and extended inland for about 170 miles. In those days of discovery... The only way to find out if it was a strait which went through the continent was to sail into it and explore. Spoiler, it was not the hoped for strait. It was what is now known as the Rio de la Plata, a large estuary where two modern national capitals are located, Buenos Aires, the capital of Argentina, and Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay. Unfortunately for Magellan and the rest of his fleet, it was not the long for strait, but turned out to be the mouth of a river. Some of you might be wondering, how did they know if it was a river or possibly a strait which could go all the way through the continent to another ocean? It was the water. If it remained salt water, then even a fairly narrow passage could be connecting two oceans. But once they ran into fresh water, they knew they had found a river. It was now time for a second attempted mutiny. And again, the mutiny was led by the same guy, the former captain of the San Antonio, Juan de Cartagena. This was called the Easter Mutiny because it occurred on Easter 1520. The mutineers actually gained control of three of the five ships. Magellan was still in control of his flagship, the Trinidad, and the officers and the crew of the Santiago remained loyal to Magellan. Magellan sent some loyal marines to the Victoria. The marines got on board, killed the captain, and gained control of the Victoria. With the Victoria now on Magellan's side, the mutineers were outnumbered three ships to two, and surrendered. This time, Magellan was not going to be as forgiving as he was in the first attempted mutiny. The captain of the Victoria, Luis Mendoza, had already been killed by the loyal marines. The captain of the Concepcion, 
Gaspar de Cuseda was found guilty of mutiny and beheaded. To make sure all the members of the Armada de Maluca got the point, Magellan had the bodies of the captains of the Concepcion and the Victoria drawn and quartered and displayed on gibbets. And in case you don't know what a gibbet is, I didn't know either and I had to look it up. According to Merriam-Webster, it's an upright post with a projecting arm for hanging the bodies of executed criminals as a warning. Magellan left the displays of the drawn and quartered bodies, meaning chopped up into four pieces, displayed on the gibbets for the entire winter that the fleet spent in Argentina. You're probably wondering, what happened to the captain of the other mutinous ship, the San Antonio. That was the ship that was originally captained by the ringleader of the mutineers, Juan de Cartagena. After the first attempted mutiny on the crossing the Atlantic, Cartagena was relieved of his command and Magellan wisely placed his cousin, Alvaro de Mesquita, as captain of the San Antonio. Magellan's cousin remained loyal to Magellan but had been captured by the mutineers led by Cartagena. The cousin survived the mutiny. So what happened to the instigator, Cartagena. He was marooned on a small island along with a priest who had been involved in the mutiny. Apparently, Magellan really wanted to kill Cartagena in a brutal fashion, but as I told you earlier, Cartagena had connections with the king of Spain. So Magellan thought it was wisest not to outright kill Cartagena, but maroon him. Of course, in reality, marooning those two men on an uninhabited small island meant certain death. So that was the punishment for the three leaders of the attempted mutiny. What about the common sailors that went along with it? What happened to them? Magellan realized he could not punish all of the sailors because then he would not have enough men to operate the ships. So instead of executing them, he had approximately 40 men put in chains for the winter and to perform much of the hardest manual labor repairing the ships. One of those conspirators who received this punishment was a man named Juan Sebastian Elcano. Remember his name, Elcano. He will be extremely important later on in this story. After the disappointment at the Rio de la Plata, Magellan led his fleet further south along the east coast of South America for another eight weeks. When they did not find the strait that they were seeking, Magellan set up winter camp. At the end of March, Magellan found a fairly safe harbor in what is now known as Port St. Julian, Argentina. This was pretty far south. It was approximately 49 degrees south in latitude. To put that into perspective, 49 degrees north is the location of most of the border between the U.S. and Canada, at least from Minnesota to Washington State, or, for our Canadian listeners, from Manitoba to British Columbia. The point is, it's pretty cold at that latitude, either north or south. Obviously, he did not know it, but the location where Magellan chose to spend the winter was only about 230 miles from the entrance to the strait that now bears his name. It was during this time that Magellan lost one of his ships. The Santiago was the smallest of the five in the Armada de Maluca. It also had the smallest crew of approximately 35 men. The captain of the Santiago, Wao Serrado, remained loyal to Magellan during the second mutiny attempt. While the other four ships remained in their winter quarters, Magellan sent the Santiago further south to search for the elusive strait. While investigating what turned out to be a river, 
the ship was lost. On May 22, 1520, the Santiago was shipwrecked in a storm at Santa Cruz River in what is now Argentina. Amazingly, all of the crew members survived. They had to trek overland back to where the remaining four ships were moored for the winter. When spring came to the southern hemisphere, the four remaining ships sailed southward along the east coast of South America. On October 21, 1520, Magellan found the strait which would take him to the Pacific Ocean. Of course, that passage is now known as the Strait of Magellan. Naturally, he first had to verify that this was a strait which would connect the Atlantic to the ocean on the other side of South America. As they traveled through the treacherous body of water, they discovered that the water was deep and, more importantly, remained salty. This indicated that it was a strait and not a large river. It took Magellan's fleet 38 days to cross the strait. And now, for some interesting facts about the Strait of Magellan. It's a navigable waterway at the southern end of South America, separating continental South America from the archipelago of Tierra del Fuego. It was Magellan who named it Tierra del Fuego, which is Spanish for Land of Fire. That's because they saw a lot of campfires from the indigenous people there. The strait is approximately 350 miles long, and I'm just using statute miles, not nautical miles. That means it's approximately 563 kilometers. At its narrowest point, the strait is only 1.2 miles across. Ever since 1843, the government of Chile has claimed possession of the Strait of Magellan. The strait is not a direct east-west line. It curves a lot and does not go in a straight line. So when we're talking about latitude, it depends on where you are measuring. So to pick a specific spot, Cape Virgines is the Atlantic entrance to the Strait of Magellan. It's located just past 52 degrees south. That is pretty far towards the Antarctic. To put that into perspective, 52 degrees north goes through the Aleutian Islands in Alaska specifically Kiska Island. And in case that name rings a bell with some of you, it's because during World War II, the Japanese occupied two of Alaska's Aleutian Islands, Kiska and Attu, for about a year, starting in June 1942. The point is that being 52 degrees south means it's very cold and it's also very stormy. And those temperatures feel colder when you are on a small wooden ship surrounded by water often getting wet from rain or just the spray of the sea. There is not a clear direct path through the Strait of Magellan. It's somewhat like a maze. There are places in the strait which are kind of like a fork in the road. At one point, the fleet reached an island, and it was not clear which was the better way to go around the island. So Magellan split up the ships to explore the different passages. The ships were supposed to regroup within a few days, but the San Antonio never returned. This was the third and finally a successful mutiny. The captain of the San Antonio was Magellan's cousin, Alvaro de Mesquita. He remained loyal to the captain general, but unfortunately for him, he was stabbed and put into chains by the mutineers. The pilot of the San Antonio, a man named Estavo Gomez, took command and reversed course. The San Antonio sailed eastward back through the Strait of Magellan into the Atlantic Ocean. The San Antonio reached Spain about six months later in May 1521. Magellan's cousin survived the return to Spain. 
He testified about the mutiny but was not believed because all of the other men on the ship told great lies about Magellan's actions and how they were justified in returning to Spain without the rest of the fleet. None of those men were ever convicted of mutiny. After waiting for the San Antonio for several days, Magellan realized that the ship had most likely sailed back to Spain. So he pressed on through the remaining part of the Strait of Magellan with his three remaining ships. Those were the flagship, the Trinidad, the Victoria, and the Concepcion. All right, Magellan had now found a water passage through South America. It was all going to be easy from here on, right? Actually, no. Like his hero Columbus, Magellan had seriously miscalculated the size of the Earth. He thought that the globe was much smaller than it is. Consequently, Magellan thought that it would be a short distance from what is now known as the Strait of Magellan to Asia. Europeans had no idea how big the Pacific is. It's enormous. The Pacific Ocean covers more than 30% of the Earth's surface. Europeans had thought that crossing the Atlantic was a big deal, and it certainly was, but the Pacific is about twice as large as the Atlantic. Vasco Nunez de Balboa was the first European to see the Pacific Ocean. In 1513, he led an expedition on behalf of the Spanish crown across the Isthmus of Panama. Balboa named the Pacific the South Sea. And some of you might be wondering, why did he call it the South Sea? If he was going to give it a directional name, shouldn't it have been the West Sea? Well, it's because Panama generally goes west to east instead of north-south, and the Caribbean Sea is north of Panama, and the Pacific Ocean is generally south of the Isthmus of Panama. You might also be wondering, why am I saying that Balboa was the first European to see the Pacific Ocean? Didn't I tell you earlier that Portuguese explorers had found a way to Asia by sailing around the southern tip of Africa? That is true, but they were only exploring in the Indian Ocean. By 1513, the Portuguese had not yet gotten to the Pacific. Balboa is the answer to two trivia questions. Besides being the first European to see the Pacific Ocean, Balboa is also credited with founding the first European settlement on the mainland of the Americas. In 1510, Balboa founded a town he named Santa Maria la Antigua del Darien, which is in present-day Colombia, right near the border with Panama. As I just told you, Balboa named the Pacific the South Sea. So who actually named that ocean that I see on most days off the coast of Southern California the Pacific Ocean? It was Ferdinand Magellan. After passing through the stormy Strait of Magellan, when he reached the open ocean, it seemed very calm to him, and that's why he named it the Pacific. Magellan thought that finding the strait was going to be the hardest part. He had no idea that crossing the Pacific was going to be the most difficult leg of the journey. The Armada de Maluca left the Strait of Magellan and into the Pacific on November 28, 1520. At first, they sailed north along the coast of what is now Chile, but they didn't find any suitable harbors where they could replenish their supplies. So Magellan reset the course northwest through the Pacific. The remaining three ships of the Armada de Maluca were sailing into the complete unknown. If they had been lucky, they might have sailed into one of the many archipelagos in the Pacific. The problem is that although there are many islands, they are tiny 
and spread out over this enormous expanse of water. Actually, they came upon two small uninhabited islands that did not have any food or water, so they pressed on. Magellan had believed it would take him maybe a week to cross the Pacific to Asia. Instead, it took more than three months. It's easy when you're reading a book or seeing a movie or listening to a podcast episode to just skip over what an ordeal that must have been. The narrator mentions it and just moves on. Think of it this way. Look at today's date when you're listening to this. Now add three months and eight days from today. Imagine being cooped up on a small wooden ship without enough food or fresh water. And to make matters worse, you don't know if you're ever going to reach your destination. At the best of times, life at sea in the early 1500s was miserable. The conditions were very cramped. The sailors slept on the deck. I know you picture them swinging comfortably in hammocks. Sorry, hammocks weren't adopted for sailing ships until the late 1500s. At the beginning of a voyage, or when they had just stopped at shore to replenish their provisions, food was not so bad. But after months on the open ocean, what little food was left was horrendous. Mostly, they lived on hardtack. That was a type of dense biscuit made from flour and water, sometimes a little salt. It was popular among navies because it lasted for a long time and was not very perishable. But after a while on the open sea, the hardtack or whatever other food was available would be infested with vermin, mostly weevils. It may have been disgusting, but when you're starving, you'll eat just about anything. And it wasn't just running out of food. Sailing ships in those days sometimes ran out of fresh water. Because fresh water was such a valuable commodity, sailors would bathe in salt water. This really dried out the skin and added pain to any open cuts or sores. But fresh water had to be saved for drinking. After months on board, the water often became putrid. In the 1500s, they didn't have sanitary plastic or metal containers like we have today to store water. Sailors suffered a lot of injuries on board. And if a sailor became injured, the ship's so-called surgeon often made things worse. The state of the medical profession in the early 1500s was appalling. If a man was injured and went to what passed for a doctor in those days, any surgery or any medical procedure was extremely painful because there was no anesthetic. Also, they didn't know about germs, and so medical implements were filthy. An injured sailor was likely to die of an infection or gangrene if he survived an initial surgery. And then there were the illnesses. Sailors often became sick because they were cold and wet so much of the time. Add to that malnutrition caused by a poor diet, and these wooden ships were infested with rats that carried diseases. That brings us to the disease that sailors feared the most, scurvy. We don't have accurate figures to go on, but I've read estimates that more than 1 million European sailors died of scurvy between the 1500s and 1700s. Scurvy is caused by a lack of vitamin C. The human body does not naturally make vitamin C, but has to obtain it from foods. In the 1500s, they did not understand that the salted meats, fish, and dry biscuits like hardtack did not contain any vitamin C. Of course, they had no idea what vitamins were in those days. I have no background in medicine, 
but from what I've read, you don't need much vitamin C to ward off scurvy. The problem was that the sailors were going for months at a time without any vitamin C, and it was a horrible way to die. The first symptoms would occur in the mouth. The gums would become soft and swollen and start to bleed. Then the teeth would fall out. The legs and arms would swell up. The person would then develop ulcers resembling black blisters, which would spread and discharge a dark-colored substance. The sailor would bleed from his nose and his mouth, eventually becoming emaciated and finally die. According to the U.S. National Institutes of Health, in the mid-1700s, a British surgeon named James Lind discovered that consuming citrus fruits would ward off scurvy. The British Navy then started storing citrus fruits on board all of their ships. That's how the British got that derogatory nickname of limeys, from sucking on lemons and limes. During those three months crossing the Pacific, approximately 30 of the approximately 160 sailors aboard the three ships died of scurvy. None of the officers died of scurvy. They did not know the reason at the time, but it was because the officers had quince preserves. A quince is similar to a pear. Nobody understood the importance of eating fruit to avoid scurvy at that time. The quince preserves were simply a bonus for being an officer. Of the sailors who did not die, morale was incredibly low. They were wondering if they would ever see land again. Sailors in those days were very superstitious. They believed that certain things could cause good luck or bad luck. This is portrayed in the famous poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. There is a part of the poem where a sailor kills a friendly albatross, and then his shipmates believe that he has now caused them bad luck. So they tie the dead albatross around his neck and make him wear it. That's where that expression comes from for a heavy burden, that it's like an albatross around your neck. After spending over three months crossing the Pacific, the luck of the Armada de Maluca finally changed. On March 6, 1521, the remaining three ships reached the Mariana Islands. If you've read much about World War II in the Pacific, you will recognize that name because the Mariana Islands is where the United States built air bases to bomb Japan, including the two atomic bombs in August 1945. Magellan had his fleet stop at the island of Guam, which today is an overseas territory of the United States. Many of the natives from Guam came out to Magellan's three ships in canoes. According to the Europeans, the natives began stealing everything they could get their hands on, including a small boat that was kept on the Trinidad. A fight ensued, and at least one of the natives was killed. The next day, Magellan sent men ashore to retrieve that small boat and to punish the natives. They killed several men and burned many of the houses. Magellan named Guam the Isla de los Ladrones, which is Spanish for Island of Thieves. Magellan then took his three ships away from Guam. On March 16, 1521, they reached the Philippines. They stayed in the Philippines until the beginning of May. This was the first time Europeans had visited the Philippines. Remember earlier I said to keep in mind a slave named Enrique that Magellan had either purchased or captured or, in some other horrible manner, acquired in the Indian Ocean when he was sailing for the Portuguese? 
Here's where Enrique comes into play. Although he was not from the Philippines, the language used in the Philippines was close to Enrique's native tongue, and he was able to communicate with the indigenous peoples. It was in the Philippines that Magellan seemed to forget that his mission was to find a route to the Spice Islands, load up on spices, and return to Spain. Magellan got very caught up in converting the natives of the Philippines to Christianity. This was the start of the Spanish colonization of the Philippines. But a local chieftain on the island of Mactan named Lapu Lapu refused to submit to Spanish authority or to convert to Christianity. Magellan decided he was going to make an example out of Lapu Lapu and the people of Mactan Island. The Europeans had much better weapons with cannons, rifles, and steel swords, and had a tremendous advantage because of steel armor. But sometimes, sheer numbers are all that matter. On April 27, 1521, Magellan landed approximately 50 or so men on the island of Mactan. Magellan and several other men were killed because of overwhelming numbers. It's estimated that about 1,500 of the indigenous peoples attacked Magellan's small force. After his death, Magellan's will was read on board the Trinidad. In his will, Magellan stated that his slave, Enrique, was to be set free. But the men who were now in command of the fleet refused to set Enrique free. They wanted to keep him as a slave and to be an interpreter. This did not turn out so well. Apparently, Enrique had communications with the leader of the island of Cebu. Magellan had been friendly with that leader and the people of Cebu. We don't know what Enrique told them to turn against the members of Magellan's fleet, but whatever he said, it worked. The Europeans were invited to a feast on Cebu on May 1, 1521. Approximately 30 of the Europeans attended the feast. When they were not suspecting, the Europeans were attacked by the natives and all of them were killed. Now what to do? There were somewhere around 100 men or so left from the original 240 or so who left Spain. That was not enough to operate three ships. So they decided to proceed with just two ships, the Victoria and the Trinidad. They removed everything of value from the third ship, the Concepcion. Then they burned the Concepcion. So where were they going now? They wanted to complete their mission of finding the Spice Islands. In November 1521, the remaining two ships of the Armada de Maluca reached their namesake islands. They had found the Maluca's the Spice Islands. They purchased as many cloves as they could fit on board their ships. They might have also purchased some cinnamon and nutmeg. Metal and glass items seemed to be the most prized items for bartering with the locals. After about a month in the Maluca's, it was time to head home. Unfortunately, the Trinidad was leaking and needed a lot of repairs. It was decided that the Trinidad would remain behind while the ship was repaired, but the Victoria would leave for Spain. At some point before they reached the Maluca's, Juan Sebastian Elcano became the captain of the Victoria. Earlier I told you to keep Elcano's name in mind, this is why. When people say that Magellan was the first captain to sail around the world, they are wrong. Juan Sebastian Elcano was. We are not exactly sure why Elcano chose the route of sailing westward to get home, but it seems that nobody wanted to cross the Pacific again. So instead of returning to Spain via the Strait of Magellan, 
The Victoria would take the route that the Portuguese had been using around the Cape of Good Hope on the southern part of Africa. I'll come back to the Victoria in a moment. First, let's discuss the fate of the Trinidad. When they finally made the repairs, it was decided that the Trinidad would sail for the Americas. They did not believe that the Trinidad could make it all the way home to Spain. They hoped the Trinidad could make it to Central America, where they could cross overland and hopefully find some Spanish settlements. They never got there. The Trinidad was captured by Portuguese ships. The Trinidad later sunk in a storm under the control of the Portuguese. Magellan had started with five ships. The captain general was now dead, and there was only one ship left from the Armada de Maluca. Nobody aboard the Victoria had ever traveled to the Indian Ocean. But Elcano had a general idea of how the Portuguese got to and from the Indian Ocean by sailing around the southern part of Africa. Think about how amazing this is. They only had a very rough plan of sailing southwest across the Indian Ocean until they reached the southern part of Africa and then heading around the southern tip of Africa until they got to the Atlantic to head back to Spain. That was all they knew. They had no idea how long any of these legs of the journey would take. How far away was Africa? How long would it take to go around Africa? Would they have enough food and water? Would they get captured by the Portuguese? And possibly the biggest question of all, would the Victoria remain afloat all the way back to Spain? Amazingly, they crossed the Indian Ocean to the southern part of Africa, then they sailed all the way around the southern tip of Africa to the Atlantic Ocean. And keep in mind that sailing past the Cape of Good Hope in either direction was a major undertaking because of the immense storms in that area. But Elcano was able to guide his ship to the Atlantic. By July 1522, the Victoria reached the Cape Verde Islands. Earlier, I had mentioned the Cape Verde Islands because they were used for the measurement for the Treaty of Tordesillas, splitting the world in half between the Spanish and the Portuguese. In 1522, these islands off the west coast of Africa belonged to the Portuguese. Elcano did not want to stop there because he might be imprisoned by the Portuguese, but he had to. The Victoria was essentially out of food and water. Many of the men were suffering from scurvy, and many of them had died. So the Victoria docked in the Cape Verde Islands and were able to purchase supplies. They told the Portuguese that they were returning home to Spain from the Americas. Remember that under the Treaty of Tordesillas, all of the Americas, except for Brazil, belonged to Spain, and so the Portuguese were fine with this. Unfortunately for the men of the Victoria, one of the Portuguese discovered cloves on board. Since cloves could only come from the Spice Islands, it was clear that the Victoria had been in Portuguese waters and not the Americas. Some of the sailors from the Victoria were captured, but the rest of the crew escaped with their ship and headed towards Spain. Finding the Strait of Magellan is the discovery for which this voyage is most remembered, but there was a second discovery from the voyage that was just as significant and possibly even more so. While they were in the Cape Verde Islands and still on friendly terms with the Portuguese, Elcano discovered that the date was July 10, 1522. This was puzzling because the ship's own meticulous records said that the date was July 9th. The problem was they had not accounted for time zones. More importantly, there was no international dateline yet. The international dateline was not established until 1884. Nowadays, if a person travels across the international dateline, 
from west to east. They gain a day, meaning that is Tuesday on the western side of the international date line, but Monday on the eastern side. Obviously, if you go from east to west, like the Victoria did, you lose a day passing from Monday to Tuesday. Since nobody had ever sailed around the world, this seeming paradox had not been taken into account. If you want a fuller analysis of this phenomenon, I did an episode entitled Time Zones, which explains how all this works. On September 6, 1522, the Victoria reached Sanlúcar de Barrameda. That was the Spanish port they had left three years earlier on September 20, 1519. As a demonstration of their incredible value, the spices on that one ship made the entire voyage profitable. But at what cost? Of the approximately 240 men who set out on the voyage, only 18 had circumnavigated the globe. Not all of the other men died. You have to keep in mind that approximately 50 had returned to Spain on the mutinous ship San Antonio, which left Magellan and the fleet in the Strait of Magellan. And there were some that had been captured by the Portuguese on the Trinidad and in the Cape Verde Islands. But regardless of the profit from spices, the voyage named after Magellan was incredibly valuable to all of mankind. The Victoria had crossed the equator four times. How far did the Victoria travel? I have read a lot of varied estimates. It seems that the Victoria sailed somewhere between 43,000 and 53,000 statute miles or about 69,000 to 85,000 kilometers. Whatever was the exact figure, Elcano and the remaining crew had proven that human beings could sail around the entire globe. The world would never be the same. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help with the placement of podcasts on particular apps. If you're listening on an app like Spotify or Apple, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. If you'd also be so kind as to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it's easy to do by scrolling down the History Analyze show page, selecting a star rating, and then tapping Write a Review. Please tell your friends, relatives, coworkers, word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for this podcast. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find fun links for all of the history geeks out there. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.